Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit, soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth, shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Scripture reading for today is from Psalm 24, verses 1 through 6. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts who do not lift up their souls to what is false, who do not swear deceitfully. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Matthew. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to he said so they sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians saying teacher we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth to no one for you do not regard people with tell us then what do you think is it lawful to pay taxes to the or not Jesus aware of their malice said why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin you use for the tax. And then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. And then Jesus said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in elementary school, we lived in a suburb north of Atlanta, Georgia. Robbie Jensen lived right next door, and he was my best friend. And the two of us wreaked playful havoc on our neighborhood. We built forts in the woods and dammed up the creek in the backyard. We rode our bikes to the 7-Eleven across the highway to buy forbidden Cokes and Against my mother's wishes, we climbed the tall trees in the yard. But our piece de resistance, if you will, was to build a giant slingshot capable of hurling a tennis ball over Robbie's house and into the yard of the rival Davis girls that lived next door. <laughs> we had a blast together. It was so much fun. Until, until one day I came home and there was absolutely no trace of Robbie or his family. Their house was boarded up and shuttered, a padlock on the front door and signs posted on each door and window saying, property of the U.S. government seized by the Internal Revenue Service for the non-payment of taxes. The once familiar home of my friend was forever gone. My 10-year-old mind went berserk, 
seeking an explanation. As the facts would come out over the next days and weeks, the Jensen's house was properly seized for the consistent non-payment of tax over a long period of time and after a series of warnings. Still, the power of the state, our government, left an impression that I carry with me to this day. One day, Robbie was there. We were having fun doing what kids do, and the next day, he was gone without a trace. The story reminds me that we live astride many different worlds all at one and the same time. We are children. We are brothers and sisters. We are parents. We belong to families. We attend schools. We're part of neighborhoods and villages. We are a part of a city, a county, a nation. We are inhabitants of a land, but yet we are also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We share this multitude of allegiances at one and the same time. Yet in this red letter story in Matthew, Jesus asserts that all that we are and all that we have belong to God, first and foremost, finally and completely. But in this secular culture of ours today, this is an odd thought. When I was in Israel a few years ago, I searched the shops of the antique dealers for a little treasure. I was on the lookout for a small gift, perhaps a small coin dating to Jesus' era. The shops held this amazing assortment of artifacts with 4,000-year-old pottery vessels dating to Moses' era, the simple farm tools from Jesus' day. In the glass cases, there were hundreds of coins coming from the time of the Roman emperor who ruled during Jesus' era the time of the early believers, there was Augustus and coins in his inventory. I just like to imagine that one of those coins circulated between Jesus and his friends. They were amazing to hold in your hand. Each one transported me back to a different time in history, a time when foreign armies occupied Jerusalem and when Jesus walked into that city with his small band of followers. And all the coins had that one thing in common. They bore the image of their emperor. This reminded me that the stories of Jesus are not imaginative tales spun from a creative mind, but real stories of a historic Jesus, a rabbi from Nazareth. Indeed, Jesus' stories do recall actual disagreements, encounters that happened in a particular time and particular place with particular people. And this week, he tells a story about taxes and illustrates it with one of those simple coins. Like today, the Jews of Jesus' era were saddled with onerous taxes. In Matthew, we read about a temple tax imposed on the worshipers who wanted to go and pray pay to pray. They also paid taxes on ordinary merchandise, food and household items. Reminds me of our sales tax. There were property taxes paid on land and dwellings, taxes on livestock. There were property taxes, taxes, taxes. And in the Gospel of Matthew, a controversy arises over yet another tax, 
a tribute annually paid to Rome. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Why should poor working peasants pay a tax to Rome that Rome might oppress them? We live in a part of the country where the five-letter word taxes is often translated into a sort of four-letter word. Folks in Michigan are skeptical of government, even in the best of circumstances. But just mention the word taxes and everyone snaps to attention. I just completed our tax statement. No one has seen the president's tax statement. Why do we pay so much in taxes? And on goes the conversation. Compared to the people of Palestine, we have little reason to be revolted. Those people were taxed by a foreign government they had not elected, who occupied their land and stationed soldiers in their villages. They were under virtual house arrest. And yet Jesus stood firmly on the side of the overtaxed, the oppressed, the hardworking people of his day, mending their wounds, healing hurts, lifting their spirits. And so it is the powerful ruling classes set their sights on Jesus to eliminate him. And then one day the differing parties of the Pharisees and the Herodians colluded to push Jesus hard on a sensitive issue, a gotcha question. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? The Pharisees were threatened by Jesus as a matter of faith. He called their practices into question. He threatened the status quo. The party of King Herod, the king propped up by the invading Romans, drew their power in support of Rome. If they heard Jesus speak against paying taxes to the emperor, they would have to prosecute him. So the Pharisees cleverly brought them along, certain that one or the other, they could discredit Jesus. He might wind up in jail if he went down one road. If he supported taxes, he would let down his followers. So he famously asked to see the coin. But Jesus, aware of their malice, says, Show me the coin. Why are you putting me to the test? They brought him a denarius, and he said, Whose head and whose title? The disciples must have thought with relief. Ah, ah, he can't be tricked so easily. They answered, this is the emperor. And he said famously, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God. And when they heard this, they were amazed and went away and left him alone. Trick question, trick answer. Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God that are God's. Wow. He told them. He fixed them, said the disciples. I think what is really amazing in this story is Jesus' audacity to insert a provocative statement about God's mysterious providence in the middle of a confrontation about tax payments and our ultimate allegiance. While Jesus' words in Matthew offer some relief, they don't neatly resolve the matter for us. They do not divide the world into boxes marked gods and not gods. I'm reminded, too, that not everything in this world is of equal value to God, of equal interest. The denarius bears the image of Caesar. It belongs to Caesar. 
that Washington but that which bears God's image. Human beings of every tribe and tongue, that belongs to God. The value of the coin is diminished. The value of every human life is vastly in with our resident ministers. An astute colleague I seem to be allergic to ascribing any suffering or sorrow to God's will. So yes, God is probably not as gentle as I might imagine. But I remain convinced that God loves creation. Yes, but more God embraces all human beings with a shattering love and a ceaseless devotion. If Matthew says one thing clearly, it's this. Tread carefully when speaking of God's domain. We're not speechless. Jesus' word for us not to is oriented toward God. What belongs to God? Everything and everyone. The mysterious span of God's love and embrace God's providence knows not boundaries or limits. God is defined more by God's amazing constancy and availability to the whole world than by anything else. Remember, it was Calvin who believed that nature is a shining garment in which God is both revealed and conceived. And drawing on the quintessential theologian Carl, this is certain for us. We have no of limits on the side. Now, in the face of evil, in the face of violence, I'm not ready to say everything. But to each and every life, yes, we belong to God. Whether poor or powerful dictators, whether we pay our taxes or are conscientious objectors, whether we're neo-capitalist or socialist, we all reside in the palm of God's gracious hand. Marilyn Robinson, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of an ardent Calvinist, sets this before us in her novel, Lila. Sorrow is very real, and loss is very final to us. Life on earth is difficult and grave, but also marvelous. Our experience is very fragmentary. Its parts don't add up. They don't even belong in the same calculation. Sometimes it's hard to believe that our experience are all parts of one thing. Nothing makes sense until we understand that experience doesn't accumulate or add up like money or memory or in years or in frailties. Instead, our experience is presented to us by a God who is not under any obligation to the past except in his eternal and freely given constancy. Jesus doesn't advocate a retreat from our personal relationships or the economic or political dimensions of our lives, but is instead helping us recognize that all things are a part of God's divine economy. Jesus invites us, I think actually demands of us, that we be thinking regularly and relentlessly about all of our decisions, where we work, what we do when we go to school, who we hang out with, 
what we buy, who we vote for, how we spend our time, all things should be shaped by the conviction that indeed the whole world is God's and all in it, including us. What does it mean or what are our point? How should our faith actually shape our daily decisions, particularly the ones we make about our economics? As it turns out, this is incredibly tricky business. More than that, there's not a Christian that I know that doesn't think about these things a fair amount. The episode between Jesus and the authorities in Matthew ends so subtly that we might miss the whole thing. When they heard this from Jesus, they were amazed. They went away. They went away amazed, astonished. His very opponents were changed. But we are hardly amused. No more can we keep God in one box and our citizenship in another. Jesus is pointing us toward a God who will not stay in God's lane. God is not a self-driving delivery van, but instead a free-ranging vehicle who bears an unquenchable love to the whole world, ignoring borders and governments and inscrutable leaders. According to Jesus, we can no longer live this life with a divided mind in a segregated spiritual model with neatly organized closets of our imagination. Instead, our practice of faith pulls us toward the very center of creation and of life, of community, deep into this sanctuary space, as well as out toward places like Alpha House or Belize or Costa Rica or Nicaragua or the Philippines, where God is to be found and known and loved and experienced and glorified. Arrhenius of Lyon wrote some 2,000 years ago that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. One of the reasons I stay faithful today is the peculiar Christian assistance that God has revealed in humankind, not just in a human form, but in a person, a human being. Jesus the Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwells, came alive and defeated the force of evil and returned to life after death. This is the astonishing good news that Jesus points us to in this tricky little parable. Thomas Kelly is a remarkable Quaker and missionary and educator. He said, we are trying to be several selves at once in this day, all without ourselves being organized by a single mastering life within us. Each of us tends to be not a single self, but a whole community of selves. Sound familiar? We each of ourselves is in turn a rank individualist, not cooperative, but shouting out her vote loudly for herself when the voting time comes. It is as if we have a chair of our committee of many selves within us, not integrate us into a whole, but merely counts the votes at each decision and leaves disgruntled minorities. We are not integrated. We are distraught. We feel honestly the pull of many obligations and try to fulfill them all. But life is meant to be lived as a gift of the living God. Life is meant to have a design, divine center, 
be lived from the center point outward. Most of us, I fear, have not surrendered all else to attend to the Holy One who stands within and also in our community. The most distinctive word in all of our faith is the Christian word of grace. That God is gracious to us. That God loves us no matter how unlovable we might be. That God visits us in the midst of distresses with a sharp and shattering love and identifies totally and wholly with us. This is the heart and center of the gospel. And it's the vision toward which Jesus points us up and away from a small coin to the astonishment that God loves us and holds us in the palm of a hand with care and love and respect. This is God's word for us this day and for every day. Amen. Let us unite our hearts and minds in prayer. Holy God, creator of us all and giver of life, you are great and we are small. You are faithful and we are fickle. You are always loving and we fall short of continually putting others first. You are moving in every sphere of life, providing grace that we do not deserve it showing mercy, caring for us in ways simple and profound. Your love is all around us. Give us eyes to see it and the will to embrace it. Open us to such surrender to you that our lives are transformed, released from anxiety over matters we cannot control. Give us peace, possible only through confidence in your providential care and help us trust you in all times, as transitions are made, as challenges are met, as obstacles are encountered, as unexpected events upend our equilibrium and disrupt our lives. Give us sensitivity to the pain of others, to the unseen wounds of war, to the of mental illness, to harm done by pride, to the quiet pain of inappropriate shame and guilt. Help us walk alongside one another, transcending differences of opinion and finding solidarity in our fellow humanity. God of all, bring peace to your world. Bring peace on a grand scale among nations. Help all world leaders focus on the interconnectedness of humankind. Recognizing the truth preached by the Apostle Paul that when one suffers, we all suffer. Bring peace in the smallest circles among family members. Help us deal patiently with one another, fully aware of the universal need for grace, eager to build up, not to tear down, ready to embrace, not take up arms. Draw close to all those who suffer physical or emotional pain. Ease heartache. Replace it with hope, with confidence that you are present in all times and circumstances. Make us bearers of your light and messengers of hope. Through our special prayers of gratitude today for your servant, Jim Manette, as he steps back from his ministry among us and opens himself to the calling of your Holy Spirit. Bless his discernment. Fill him with joy in your service. Walk with Jim and his family as new avenues of opportunity present themselves. 
that they may know your peace, your guidance, and your presence today and always. We make these prayers in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, the one who knows the pains of our lives and who wins for us the victory of tomorrow. And we join our voices in the prayer he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.